Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analyst Andrew Hewitt to discuss the benefits and risks of bring your own AI, or what we affectionately call BYOAI today. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's give a definition here and and level set a little bit. What is the scope of what we're talking about with BYOAI? So in the report, we formally define BYOAI as an employee using any form of external AI service to to accomplish company-related business, regardless of whether that's sanctioned by the business or not. And so the most common example of that, of course, would be usage of you know, uh, generative AI um, services like ChatGPT or MidJourney or Dolly or any of those capabilities. But it also could mean software that has AI embedded in it that's not sanctioned by the business, um, tools to create AI applications or even APIs that developers might be using to interact with large language models. So typically we think of BYO AI in the context of those generative AI capabilities, but it's actually much broader than that. And so what we see with organizations is that they're having to grapple with, you know, understanding and encouraging the use of these consumer AI services and also trying to limit the usage of that um, AI service that they may not know about. What we might call shadow AI. So the idea of shadow IT has been around for a long time. Now we're hearing a lot about shadow AI, which would be bring your own AI without the business actually knowing about it. So that's our formal definition that we've used in the report with a little bit more detail as well. It it is interesting because on the one hand, we've also heard all these stories about employees just also being scared of AI as it being a means by which companies can dramatically improve productivity of employees to the the point that they can actually reduce the number of employees. But it sounds like there's also this portion of employees are like, no, wait, I need this. So they're embracing it. Absolutely. And when we look at the the data in terms of um, expected usage of this, um, you know, we see that leaders say that about, um, you know, 85 percent of them expect that employees will use this just to supplement their day to day activities. And so there is absolutely that fear of of uh, of being automated out of my job, um, AI replacing the, the tasks that I use that I complete every single day. But there's also that broader challenge of. Of, of how do I encourage that and, and drive innovation? I think that's more of the predominant narrative um, that most employees are adhering to today. Yeah. It is interesting when you think about it, like you mentioned, that shadow IT isn't anything new. Um, I think what's unique, and if we focus just on generative AI for like the average, um, say, knowledge worker or office worker, et cetera, I mean, isn't necessarily all that different from a productivity tool or suite of tools. So right now, employees might be using everything from their own project management tools to their own tools that could be check their grammar, if you will. So to some extent is, can you really control generative AI if it's really just another kind of productivity tool that employees want to take advantage of? Well, that's the big question. I think that's something that gets overlooked quite a bit is there's, there's part of this that's not really that different from just sanctioning third-party usage of uh, of software. Like if someone is going to bring, you know, a design or like Photoshop capability and use that as a consumer service for their work, there's always been kind of a process of 
how does the enterprise know about that? How do you get approval for that? How do you secure against that? You know, and so I think that that type of model also applies in the case of AI, especially when it's infused in software that someone might be using. But I think what's different about generative AI is that you're not just managing the piece of software itself and saying, is this secure? Does it align with our standards, et cetera? You're also managing the outputs from that service as well, which carry a lot of different risks, whether that's legal or regulatory risk, um, you know, things around governance, um, obviously security risk is part of this as well. Um, overall employee experience risk, like you mentioned earlier around, you know, automation and so forth. And so I think that output from the generative AI system is what makes bring your own AI particularly complex to manage as an enterprise, although it does have some commonalities with that historical process of of being able to have visibility and management over third-party applications. Right, right. So, yeah, I know, actually, before we jump into some of the specific risks, do you have any sense of the use cases that employees seem to be most excited about, like when they're turning to generative AI or just AI solutions in general, like particularly around BYOAI? <laughs> <laughs> it is a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I think uh, obviously the, the the common one is is content generation, you know, being able to go in and um, have, um, you know, a generative AI system go through and, and summarize maybe an article that you're that you're reading and give you the most salient points. Um, being able to create images for, you know, a PowerPoint presentation really quickly, being able to take data and format that into a graph, like those types of things that we are continually doing, um, which feel like we've been doing them for years and years, like 20, 30 years. I know throughout my entire career, I've been creating graphs and PowerPoint charts, et cetera. But those types of things can be really automated quickly through generative AI services. So that's what I'm seeing, you know, most frequently. There has been a lot of um, talk about, you know, analysis of data, being able to bring forward, um, you know, correlations and so forth by looking at a data set. That does seem to be more of like a corporate sanctioned generative AI use case where you have access to the large language model that maybe is trained on your internal data. But as far as bring your own AI, I think the, the key use case is all around content generation. Right, right. It's interesting. I feel like in the news, we've seen really mixed reactions from CEOs and CIOs, like I think there's been several examples where they where they have just outright banned it, just banned it. Like, no, you cannot do that. And then uh, there was another company that actually immediately went out and bought enterprise licenses for every one of his employees in his company. So it's interesting to see that there's just completely um, different reactions to this as opposed to down the middle. Absolutely. I think what's interesting with the data too is most organizations are just making some type of policy change there. I think it's, you know, it's north of 80% of the AI decision makers that we surveyed said that they're, they're either updating their existing policies or writing a new one, et cetera. Um, only 5% of them said they've fully banned it. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty telling. It's, it shows that it's, it is really hard to actually ban this technology. It's not like bring your own device where you, you say, you know, if you don't have this piece of software on your device, you can't access the enterprise services. Um, that's not the case with generative AI. I could just go to a website, um, I can type it into the URL and I have access to it. So actively banning it is is really tough unless you want to basically turn off the internet. So it's it's been um, something that's been really hard to execute for sure. 
Andrew, can we unpack a little bit with like more specificity the risks that you you had mentioned a few, but let's kind of go through them one by one. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there are uh, obviously, you know, traditional security risks in terms of the overall service, et cetera. Things like um, data loss prevention tend to be something that come up very frequently with clients. I want to make sure that I'm not taking customer information, uploading that into an external generative AI system where I don't have control over it, right? So there are a host of kind of traditional security challenges associated with it as well. I would say what's kind of unique here is you have this uh, proliferation of different types of risks that maybe you didn't have in the older bring your own device um, transition that happened about 10 years ago. You have things like legal risks. Um, you know, if people are um, contributing to bias perpetuation or discrimination because of what they're receiving from the generative AI system, that can be a huge um, risk. There was a great example, and I think it maybe has been mentioned on the podcast before, of of a lawyer actually using falsified court records for precedents in a case that they're working on, like totally illegal, right? Uh, so that's a, that's a good example of, of how we can use um, these tools in a way that really jeopardizes the legality of what we're doing as an employee. There's also things like third-party app risk. Um, I think one of the really interesting things that's been happening quite a bit is, you know, every vendor out there is trying to get on the AI train. You know, I want to embed AI capabilities into my software so that people can be more productive with them. What happens is that they can oftentimes enlighten these applications without informing the the organization or the employee that they've done so. And so all of a sudden, you're in a bring your own AI situation without having agreed to it. Um, and so that's an, that's an area that's going to be very complex to manage. Um, you'd be having to look at all those third-party applications, look at the, the roadmap, look at the, um, the, the press releases from the vendors that are managing those apps. That becomes a risk in itself that, that's, that's really very difficult to actually manage. Um, things like resiliency as well. Um, this is such a new space, right? Um, employees uh, you know, are actively signing up for these services. The, the adoption has really skyrocketed over the past year or so. But what happens if that consumer service no longer becomes available? What happens if the prices increase and it's no longer tenable for that employee to go and pay for that service, right? And, there, and you have a lot of that enterprise data that's located inside that service, right? So that becomes a major issue as well if you lose access to that. So those are some of the major ones. I think for me, when I think about the, the biggest risk, and I come from this from the perspective of, of writing a lot of research on digital employee experience, employee engagement, et cetera, is the risk that if you don't respond to this AI movement, you're going to perpetuate employee burnout. You're going to generate more shadow AI. If you look at a lot of the data out there today, it's pretty bleak from an employee experience perspective. A large portion of people out there say they feel tired and worn out after a day of work. They feel overwhelmed by their work. They feel frustrated by their work. And a lot of that um, is due to the fact that they don't have the capabilities to go out and um, and do their work effectively, or they're being overrun by their work. This is a huge opportunity for organizations to say, here's something that's going to automate some of the more mundane work that you may have and free up time for you to focus on higher value projects or career growth or whatever. Right? So I think it's a big opportunity to address some of the burnout issues. And if you don't, what we've seen historically with shadow IT is that employees will go and seek that technology 
anyway. They don't really care. <laughs> so uh, you'll encourage that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the, the biggest risk is actually not doing anything at all or attempting yep. to ban it outright. But it, there... It is interesting though when I think about the all the risks you identified, and that was that was pretty comprehensive. The 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 data leak one does really concern me. I mean, we've actually already seen mm-hmm. it. Like Samsung actually had a pretty significant data leak, and as a result of that, did ban the use of um, ChatGPT specifically, but generative AI with its employees. So that one is definitely a concern. Which you could set up a policy to insist that. Employees never upload either sensitive IP or customer data to generative AI, but there aren't those security tools haven't caught up. Uh, the data, right. data leak prevention tools haven't caught up yet. Um, so then that means you need training, you need education in addition to in addition to the policy. The other one that's interesting too is now you have a group of writers and authors who are actually suing some generative AI companies for, for copyright infringement. So, right. you, you know, if content creation is the number one use case and you're using um, a consumer version of these solutions and you're generating content from it, are you then legally, you know, roped up in that as well? If, if judge rules in the favor of, of these, of these lawsuits, Although it's interesting, I think a few of the companies have come out and said that they'll try to protect you from any any lawsuit. We'll we'll see if we believe them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's certainly evolving. Uh, I think what I've seen from clients so far has been let's put it in the policy and really try to encourage that and make sure that people are checking on those copyright issues before they use anything that they've created from generative AI. But absolutely, it's it's a major thorn that. I think enterprises, um, courts, et cetera, are going to have to iron out over the next you know, 12 months or something. Yeah, I, I would. I definitely think those those lawsuits, that's something to keep an eye on. And I think we're even starting to see similar lawsuits in Europe. They're, they're obviously um, already happening here in the U.S., but uh, some similar lawsuits that are happening in Europe. So th- those, I think, are going to be super interesting. The security tools, I know, will catch up. Yeah, because that's... There's so much um, investment that happens in security, and it's going to be a huge opportunity. And uh, there's always been monopoly level of silliness money that's in security, so they'll catch up. Um, and to be fair, too, if there are security solutions out there today that are browser-based, that if you really wanted to, you could easily block, you know, browser access to any of these solutions if you wanted to go that far. Yeah, using an enterprise browser, absolutely. They, having that like segregation between the work and the uh, personal data, I definitely see that out there as well. And I totally agree. I mean, we had this with the BYOD issue as well. I mean, there were very few solutions that could manage that early on. And now there's all sorts of solutions you can bring in your device of any type, whether it's mobile or a PC or, or, or Mac or whatever. And so have that um, controlled. So I think we'll see a significant investment in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those lawsuits, I think will be what to keep an eye on. Um, but, but I guess to like get back to being practical and pragmatic, you you can't stop this. And to your point, the whole employee experience of it at the end of the day, we know people are going to use it. They're desperate to use it because of the productivity gains and, um, people just drowning under a mountain of work. So how do you get a handle of this? If it were to be a little bit more programmatic, I mean, we've talked policy. Is that where you start? You start with policy. 
but you don't do it in the way that we did the BYOD policies. So what we saw earlier on with the BYOD policies was two things. One, um, it was a very static policy release. In other words, like I created the policy, I disseminated it out, and then I just kind of left it there and I didn't really continually you know, evolve with it. That can't happen in this case just because of the evolving nature of, of generative AI, how fast all of this is moving. And secondly, policies of the traditional model were very draconian in nature. In other words, it was basically a list of here's what you can and cannot do. Um, and if you violate any of these, here are the, uh, here are the repercussions for you. You're going to get fired, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so there was no employee empathy. There was no focus on what's in this for me as the employee. Why would I even subject myself to BYOD if I have you know, these types of repercussions if I were to violate some type of standard. And so what we recommend in the research is is to, yes, start with policies and, yes, have those prescriptive elements of, you know, don't do this, do, do, do this, but also be very clear with what those use cases are. You know, tell that employee what's in it for them. You know, what types of things can they expect to be able to do with this generative AI service and, and really elucidate what are those key use cases if it means... Marketing is going to be able to use this for, um, you know, content creation. We want to make sure that uh, developers can use it for script generation and have those actually in the policy that, so that people can understand how can I actually get to use this. That's part of bringing more empathy into the policy itself. We also recommend things like providing links to training and development, you know, resources in there as well so that people can learn, you know, what are the implications of using these AI capabilities. AI literacy is one of the major changes that you'll see from a BYO AI policy from a BYOD policy, understanding how to use these tools ethically and responsibly, et cetera. So there should be more guidelines in it. So overall, you, you do have a policy-based approach, but it is um, continually evolving. It's much more empathetic towards the employee. I mean, it really kind of connects the employee use case with the outcome that you're trying to drive as well. Yeah. Does it make sense for the policy to also include a list of quote unquote like a approved generative AI applications? Because maybe there's some where, yeah, these ones we, we believe the company is taking um, some actions to address security concerns, um, legal concerns and copyright concerns and others. These other ones like please stay away from these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's it, it, anytime that you can make it clearer for the employee in their context, what's approved and what's not, that's a good thing. It's it's much worse to go out and say, um, you know, here are the specifics of the technology and how you should approach that technology. The end user is not going to understand that. What they're going to understand is how does this apply to my day-to-day -day work life? And so having those use cases in there can go a long way in, in helping them understand and think through the implications of of the usage of BYO AI. It strikes me that there's like such an opportunity here as like a moment in time, right? You kind of listed out some data, right? Like employees are feeling overwhelmed and frustrated and there's there's a lot happening right now, but taking this as a opportunity, yes, policies addressing your risks to upskill your employees to, you know, have them be more fluent in AI and what the opportunity is for them to gain efficiencies and do or do higher level task work or whatever it is. So it's like a, through which lens do we want leaders to be looking at this, right? It would hopefully be, you know, sort of like this is 
there is goodness here in addition to risk. Is that a fair? Absolutely. And I think that's why organizations need to address this is because the upside is so high. You know, it's, it's even, it's way higher than it was for bring your own device. Let's face it. You know, there's all sorts of things that I can use this technology for missing out on that. Like you said earlier, Steph is, is the biggest risk. It's just, how do we do it in the context of also protecting our um, overall enterprise security, our brand risk, et cetera, making sure that we're, we're doing due diligence in terms of doing this in a responsible manner. Yeah. You know, what's kind of interesting too. I mean, the way you framed it, and I agree with you, which is employees want this for themselves because they're burnt out. They want the productivity. They want that, that leg up, if you will. I also think about the state of labor relations in the U S right now, right now in several industries, like labor, labor relations is, is tense. I mean, we have strikes in the case of the writer's strike, which is finally resolved. It looks like, um, AI was a piece of it, which is they wanted certain protections that as AI was adopted, that, um, you know, they would be compensated appropriately and it wouldn't be used so extensively as to just kind of, you know, gut the number of writers that were necessary. So, I, I guess just to be a little bit of devil's advocate, at some point do employees say like, hey, I've adopted all of these tools, in many cases at my own expense, and I've dramatically increased my productivity. Do I deserve a pay increase? That's an interesting question. You know, I think if you're delivering higher outcomes for the business, um, probably, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Think you're, I think you're in a great um, place to go out and, and demand that. I mean, um I guess there's probably other technologies over the years that have also contributed to that, that employees have used to, to be more successful, um, mobile, you know, maybe being one example. Um, so I think that they would be in that right to, to go and demand that, you know, over time. Um, it's just, I think we're at such an early stage that it might be difficult to do so now. Yeah. It was just, I'm just thinking in my head, like, Oh, if I, if I doubled my productivity and I'm making that up, but it's possible if I doubled my productivity with automation tasks, um, content creation. I mean, you name it, data, the data analysis, things that used to take me hours and hours. If I double my productivity at some point, it's like, if my company doesn't save hiring another employee, like, again, when do I demand that I'm appropriately compensated for the productivity output that I've increased? You become a consultant and show other companies and other employees (laughs) how to do that, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Right. And I wonder when that switches back too, because if if the enterprise eventually says, "Hey, here's a corporate sanctioned version of this," um, you know, you're you're not going to be eligible for getting like a promotion or pay raise because this is just a tool that we're providing you. You're kind of like expected to use that, but right. if it's outside of the expectations for your particular role, uh, I remember a number of years ago we did some research that showed that people that identified themselves as um, self-enablers um, were about three times more likely to say that they were um, very career-driven. Um, so there's a mm-hmm. link between those people that are super career-driven and those people that will self-enable themselves, um, that they're likely going to be pushing for those pay raises and promotions anyway. But when you take that away and you provide that as a corporate service, it gives them a little bit less leeway, I would think. Right. I think about, we've talked a lot about the comparisons to BYOD and how it's different and then how it's the same. I mean, BYOD, you could argue, 
increase the workday by hours. Like suddenly I could be at work at any time, you know, at home on my commute at the airport, but I don't, you might know better than me, but I don't think that led to any increases in pay for the increased productivity or the increased <laughs> time at work. Yeah. 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 Maybe if you were working all hours of the day as a sales rep and were able to close more deals or something because you had access to mobile, maybe, but I don't think people were explicitly making that link. Right. Back to technology a little bit. I mean, we talked a lot about security is likely to evolve quite a bit um, and probably like privacy solutions as well. Um, I, I'm curious, like actually recently some of the uh, the chip makers have actually talked about like a quote unquote AI PC, which is they expect individuals to start using these so much on their own laptops and desktops and other computing devices that the, the chipset is actually going to have to evolve to keep up with the performance and the bandwidth requirements. Do you see that a real need for an AI chip, if you will, on the PC? Absolutely. And there are kind of two levels to that. Um, the first, which is already out there today, is is how AI actually improves the, the PC experience. Like any of the things that you experience when you're doing video conferencing, like background blur or, or noise cancellation, um, some of the new capabilities that can adjust your eyes. So even if you're looking down at the screen, it'll adjust your eyes up, make you look like you're looking into the camera. That's all AI and that's all happening from the chipset itself. So the more advanced thing is to start bringing all these generative AI capabilities as well. And so we're hearing a lot about that, certainly from the, the chip manufacturing space about, you know, supplementing, um, you know, the chipset on the PC with an AI enabled chip to be able to do that. Um, there's also a very you know close link between the chipset and the operating system itself. And so we've definitely seen, um, it was, you know, recent announcement from Microsoft around bringing Copilot directly into the Surface device lineup um, so that an, empl an employee could go in and, and use Copilot directly on their device um, within Windows 11 to be able to out and you know accomplish different things, generative AI system. So that's definitely coming. I think this will be a, um, a pivotal part of the employee experience. It remains to be seen whether that'll be different from uh, Clippy. I don't know if you all remember Clippy. <laughs> yeah, I remember Clippy. But, but Clippy, he, he wasn't super useful, but I think uh, I think the generative AI use cases will likely provide a lot more value. If we play it out years in advance from now, so right now employees are excited, they're, they're experimenting, just like we saw with BYD. At some point, um, corporations will catch up. They'll probably come up with a prescribed set of generative AI tools that are the most effective that they will provide the enterprise licenses for, um, and that'll sort of displace the BYO uh, trend. And then at the same time, though, this has huge computing requirements. Does this cause like earlier refreshes of all of your laptop and desktop devices to be able to support all of this new capability? Otherwise, like you've got this amazing solutions that you try to run on your average desktop or laptop and they're just going to have the worst performance um yeah i mean i think we've already started to see that as well i mean throughout the pandemic um even some of the ai capabilities that i mentioned for collaboration you know a lot of it leaders have come back to me and say hey, these aren't lasting as long as they were uh, and that's the basic ai use cases so i think absolutely it'll have an impact on uh, device refresh i know that the chip 
chip make- makers are going to be thinking about that as well and, ch- and trying to optimize that for the long term. So we'll see what the response is there. But I think there is definitely some some precedence there in terms of being able to you know, dramatically impact that refresh rate. Okay. So I guess the advice for tech leaders is if, if you haven't updated your policies, again, that would be sort of step one, but doing that in conjunction probably with, with other teams from security to it, other data governance teams, but not stopping there, right? This is a, a cultural change, an education change, a training change. And actually, I love the word that you brought up, which is empathy. Like mm-hmm. really having, if you want to build trust with your employees, like really starting with em- empathy. Empathy, making it a continually, continually evolving policy, um, constantly taking into account employee feedback around that is super important as well. But yes, the main message is to, if you haven't started with that policy revival, start doing it now and start thinking about what are the key use cases that work for my organization and how can I get people thinking about responsible AI usage when they're going out and using these bring your own AI services. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.